Welcome to the Occult London podcast. This is a new podcast dedicated to exploring magic, mysticism, and the Kabbalah, as well as other topics. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please take a moment to leave us a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you tune in. It really helps more folks find us and helps us to continue to get this message out there. Also, don't forget to check out our website, occultlondon.co.uk, to subscribe. And if you're feeling extra supportive, consider backing us on Patreon, or you can also find us on Buy Me A Coffee. Every little bit goes a long way in keeping this show alive. Also, once again, a massive thanks to all of our Patreon members and supporters this year. Your support means an awful lot, and we could not do this without you. So thank you very much. Now let's dive into today's episode. Today's episode is a bit of a special one that I put together as we are in the Christmas or Yule season and although I am suffering with flu at the moment so apologies if my voice sounds a little bit croaky um, I wanted to get this episode out there today um, to talk a little bit about some of the esoteric and occult aspects of this magical time of the year. So I hope you enjoy it. The festival of Christmas or Yule can be thought of as it's really a a highlight of the winter season and it holds massive importance and significance to millions of people globally. And there's also many different cultural, mythical and esoteric elements within its history and its traditions and symbolism. Historically, Yule has been a time of feasting and merriment for many generations, with many ancient customs still existing in our modern celebrations. And these traditions include, obviously, you know, bringing in the Christmas tree into the home, um, pine, holly, hanging up mistletoe, decorating a Christmas tree, um, carol singing, you know, baking special cakes and cookies and preparing the Yule Log and many of these traditions trace back to pagan roots. Also if we think about it the figures of Santa Claus or Father Christmas is really magical and you know has many similarities with some of the stories of the god Odin, the Norse Yule elf um, who you know bestows gifts on the solstice to those who honoured them and also the figure of Father Christmas or Santa has you know, many different incarnations around the world, which makes it almost feel like it's this kind of Christmas spirit that visits us once a year. We have Father Christmas in England, there's Kris Kringle in Germany, St Nick, and also Father Winter in Russia. So this idea, this global journey of Santa is also very interesting from uh, an esoteric perspective as the spirit of Christmas flies through the air on a reindeer-led sleigh, delivering gifts and happiness to children. And it feels very kind of shamanic in that journey across the sky, um, delivering these amazing kind of treats and presents. Also, if we're lucky enough to get snow at Yule, which is a rare occurrence for most of us in the UK, unfortunately, um, the winter landscape also adds adds a lot to the sort of sense of magic um, the softly falling snowflakes that really crisp air and the tranquil silence 
of a winter's night all contribute to this magical atmosphere of Christmas or Yule. Getting together with a feast, bringing our friends and family together, giving gifts out, putting up lights and hanging wreaths. These are all symbols of this magical time and also remind us of this rich history of tradition and our ancestors and the mythology that surrounds these winter celebrations. December is a unique month, not just for Christmas and Yule, but also for other celebrations um, and festivals. So, for example, you have the festival of Hanukkah um, around the kind of November, December time. There's also Kwanzaa in Africa and, and Bodhi Day in the Buddhist tradition. And a lot of these festivals, although they're very different in terms of their cultural kind of symbolism and meaning, um, often do have this focus on this theme of illuminating the darkness with light. So in Hanukkah, we have the eight-day candle lighting ceremony that commemorates this idea of the miracle of the enduring light. Kwanzaa in Africa is, is lighting of the Kanara, and Bodhi Day in Buddhism celebrates the Buddha's enlightenment, which is this idea of this kind of inner light rather than an external um, kind of candle or fire. A spiritual awakening symbolised by the lighting of candles. And also have Yule in the Western uh, tradition. The term Yule traces back to the old word, Norse word Yol or Wheel, which denotes a midwinter festival that was integral to pre-Christian Germanic peoples. And this festival extending over several days was a, would have been a period of feasting, sacrifice and celebration, deeply connected to the natural world and its cycles, seasons and also the darkest time of the year as well. The word Christmas comes from the Old English Christus Mese, which means Christ's Mass. And it's a celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, obviously, which is a figure central to Christianity. And however, the timing of Christmas and many of its customs have their roots in pre-Christian traditions. So the choice of December the 25th, for example, um, aligns very closely with Roman and pagan festivals like Saturnalia and the birth of the sun god Sol Invictus, as well as Mithras, in the Persian traditions. Um, so there's lots of crossovers there, and obviously some scholars have suggested there's, this is kind of an early effort by the Christian church to adapt and absorb existing celebrations into its religious framework. But December is also an important month from a timing perspective in many ancient calendars, and was seen as really a turning point of the year, so cultures across the world observed the winter solstice, which is the shortest day and the longest night of the year, with various rituals and celebrations. And these observances were not just a recognition of the season, but also an expression of hope and the anticipation of the return of longer days and the summer. In these ancient times, people felt a profound connection with the rhythms of the natural world, um, they would have been largely agricultural, so you know would have got up when the sun rose and gone to bed when the sun s set. So they'd have been very much connected with the seasons and with nature, 
um, also because they needed to survive and it, it very much would have relied on the agricultural year and the weather etc in order to grow crops and obviously storing the harvest to ensure that it lasted to keep you and your family alive through the tough winter months. So these celebrations would have been a great way to honour and influence these cycles. The Yule period also coincides with the winter solstice, obviously, which is a really significant astronomical event, um, which we had yesterday. Um, And this is marked by the longest night and the shortest day of the year. And during this time, obviously, the sun enters the sign of Capricorn, which is a zodiac sign symbolised by the symbol of the goat. And cultures worldwide have long celebrated this period, seeing it really as a time of rebirth and renewal. And the solstice symbolises the sun's return from the darkness and the start of lengthening days and the cycle of life, death and rebirth. The mythological and historical aspects of Yule and the Winter Solstice are very varied. Um, and obviously depending on the the different cultures and traditions that celebrated it but it was a time really when the veil between the worlds was believed to be thinnest and allowing for this greater interaction with the supernatural and although we know very little about the customs or practices that our ancestors from prehistory would have practiced at festivals such as the winter solstice however we do know that these communities would have been very connected to the rhythms of the natural world and would have recognised the winter solstice as being an important turning point, marking the end of the growing darkness and the slow and gradual return of the sun. And we can see how important the festival would have been from places such as Stonehenge in England and also Newgrange in Ireland, which are both prehistoric monuments. Both of these amazing places, and I recommend everyone go and visit them if they can, align with the summer, the, with the solstice at sunrise which really indicates their importance in these celebrations at stonehenge which was built around 2500 bc the sarsen stones were carefully placed to line up with the movements of the sun so if you stand in the middle of the stone circle on midsummer's day you would see the sunrise just to the left of the heel stone which is an outlying stone northeast of the circle. And archaeologists have actually found a large stone hole to the left of the heel stone, which may have held a partner stone. So if so, the two stones would have framed the sunrise. And there's similar things you can see also at Karnak in, um, in Egypt as well, in terms of these alignments. Also, on Midwinter's Day at Stonehenge, the sun would originally have set between the two upright uh, stones of the tallest trilithion, which is two upright stones capped by a horizontal lintel, and it would have dropped down over the altar stone, which is a sandstone block which was placed across the solstice axis. Today, unfortunately, this effect has been lost because half of the trilithion has fallen but um, archaeologists have conducted laser surveys and they've shown that the stones that framed the solstice axis were the most carefully shaped with vertical sides that basically kind of framed the the movement of the sun so people would have gathered at these these places um, for communal ceremonies 
which would have most likely meant included lighting huge bonfires, feasting, drinking and exchanging of goods and gifts. And these fires, you know, possibly may have been seen as being a way to rekindle the weakening sun and banish evil spirits. Also, the solstice was a time for introspection and storytelling. So the communities would all come together around the fire during the longest nights and share tales and prepare for the coming spring. Also, if we go to ancient Egypt, the winter solstice was extremely important, not just as a celestial event, but also a very spiritual one, deeply entwined with the mythological and cosmos that they believed in. And the time of the winter solstice was believed to be the time of the rebirth of the sun god Horus, son of Isis and Osiris, symbolising renewal and the triumph of light over darkness. I imagine most of the listeners are aware of who Horus is. Um, However, for those of you who don't, he is the hawk-headed son of Isis and Osiris, who is born to Isis using magic with the sun god Ra after her husband Osiris is murdered by his brother Set. And the process of Horus's birth is really beautifully described in the coffin texts, which describe this birth and flight of Horus as the falcon god, and also has various different references to Osiris as well. And I wanted to quote from the coffin texts the how this kind of comes about. Taking shape as a falcon, the lightning flash strikes... The gods are afraid. Isis wakes pregnant with the seed of her brother Osiris. She is uplifted. The widow and her heart is glad with the seed of her brother Osiris. She says, O you gods, I am Isis, the sister of Osiris, who wept for the father of the gods. Osiris, who judged the slaughterings of the two lands, his seed is within my womb. I have moulded the shape of the gods within the egg, as my son, who is at the head of the Ennead. What he shall rule is this land, the heritage of his grandfather Geb. What he shall say is concerning his father. What he shall kill is set, the enemy of his father Osiris. Come, you gods, protect him within my womb, for he is known in your hearts. He is your lord, this god who is in his egg, blue-haired of form, lord of the gods, and great and beautiful are the veins of the two blue plumes. Oh, says Artem, guard your heart, O woman. Isis says, how do you know he is the god, lord, and heir of the Enneads, who made you within the egg? I am Isis, one more spirit-like and august than the gods. The god is within this womb of mine, and he is the seed of Osiris. Then says Artem, you are pregnant and you are hidden. O girl, you will give birth, being pregnant for the gods seeing that he is the seed of Osiris. May that villain who slew his father not come, lest he break the egg in its early stages, for the great of magic will guard against him. 
thus says Isis. Hear this, you gods, which Artem, lord of the mansion of the sacred images, has said. He has decreed for me protection for my son within my womb. He has knit together an entourage about him within this womb of mine. For he knows that he is the heir of Osiris and a guard over the falcon who is in this womb of mine has been set by Artum, lord of the gods. Go up on earth that I may give you praise. The retainers of your father Osiris will serve you. I will make your name for you. You have reached the horizon, having passed by the battlements of the mansion of him whose name is hidden. Strength has gone up within my flesh. Power has reached into my flesh. Power has reached. Who conveys the sunshine god and he has prepared his own place, being seated at the head of the gods in the entourage of the releaser. Isis speaks to her son who has now been born. O falcon, my son Horus, dwell in this land of your father Osiris, in this your name of falcon, who is on the battlements of the mansion of him whose name is hidden. I ask that you will always be in the suite of Ra, of the horizon, in the prow of the primeval bark for ever and ever. Isis goes down to the releaser, who brings Horus, for Isis has asked that he may be the releaser as the leader of eternity. See Horus, you gods. I am Horus, the falcon, who is on the battlements of the mansion of him whose name is hidden. My flight aloft has reached the horizon. I have overpassed the gods of the sky. I have made my position more prominent than that of the primeval ones. The contender Set has not attained my first flight. My place is far from Set, the enemy of my father Osiris. I have used the roads of eternity to the dawn. I go up in my flight, and there is no god who can do what I have done. I am aggressive against the enemy of my father Osiris. He having been set under my sandals in this name of. I am Horus, born of Isis, whose protection was made within the egg. The fiery blast of your mouth does not attack me, and what you may say against me does not reach me. I am Horus, more distant of place than men or gods. I am Horus, son of Isis. And that's a beautiful passage about the birth of Horus from the Egyptian coffin text, which was translated by R.O. Faulkner. Um, and yeah, it's a beautiful bit of uh, writing, so I definitely recommend looking into that. The ancient Egyptians celebrated this time with rituals and offerings over a 12-day period to reflect the 12 decisions in their zodiac sun calendar and the ancient Egyptians would have also decorated their temples with lots of greenery as a symbol of the completed year as well as celebrating the cyclical nature of life and the power of the sun. And the birth of the child Horus or Huaparkrat, Harpocrates in Greek, is at the winter solstice is documented by Plutarch as follows and Plutarch writes thus we shall attack the many boring people 
who find pleasure in associating the activities of these gods with the seasonal changes of the atmosphere or with the growth sowing and planting of crops and who say that Osiris is being buried when the corn is sown and hidden in the earth and that he lives again and reappears when it begins to sprout for this reason it is said that Isis when she was aware of her being pregnant put on a protective amulet on the sixth day of Thialfi at the winter solstice gave birth to Harpocrates, imperfect and prematurely born, amid plants that burgeoned and sprouted before their season. And they are said to celebrate the days of her confinement after the spring equinox. Also, Macrobius describes this as well when he writes, At the winter solstice the sun would seem to be a little childlike, that which the Egyptians bring forth from a shine on the appointed day, since the day is then at its shortest, and the god is accordingly shown as a tiny infant. So the birth of the child Horus as Harpocrates is seen as quite significant, as this is the gentle and quiet, childlike version of the mighty war god, the Horus becomes when he grows into adulthood so it's very relevant when we're thinking about the winter solstice and this idea of the first glimmers of the sun beginning to return at this point this is also very similar to obviously the christian element um this isn't really a christian podcast at all but um it's difficult to talk about these topics without bringing this into it so um apologies for those of you who are more kind of on the pagan persuasion but the symbolism of the child Horus is quite similar to um, the symbolism of the baby Jesus who's kind of nurtured and cared for by Mary or in the case of the ancient Egyptians, the goddess Isis as so she actually kind of hides him in the in the marshes and the reeds until he can reach like the full extent of his power because uh, Set is searching Egypt to try and find the baby Horus and and obviously kill him so that he does not come into his power, um, which is also very similar to the, the Bible stories with Jesus and Herod, for example. And um, and also this kind of softer, kind of quieter aspect of it can also be seen um, in many of the statues of Harpocrates. So when um, during the period when there was kind of this uh, blending of Greek and ancient Egyptian so after the conquest of Egypt with Alexander the Great um, you see quite a lot of sort of Greek statues of Egyptian gods and there's there's many that are of Harpocrates where he's a child holding a finger to his lips which has been seen by some scholars to suggest a kind of misunderstanding of the Greek finding statues of the child Horus sucking his thumbs as sort of like a, a misinterpretation as well as the ancient Egyptians, though, the winter solstice was also important in other regions. So the Mesopotamians, with their deep understanding of astronomy, uh, also marked this time of year with the festival of Zagmut. And this festival was traditionally held in December and lasted around 12 days. And this centred around the triumph of Marduk, who was the patron deity of Babylon, uh, the god of creation, water, agriculture, justice, medicine, and also magic. And it was really kind of over the, his victory 
over the forces of chaos, which were symbolised by Tiamat, who's the kind of primordial goddess of the sea. And the victory of Marduk over the forces of chaos was kind of seen as essential to maintaining order and balance in the cosmos. And the festival involved a series of different rituals and ceremonies that basically mirror the mythological battle between Marduk and Tiamat, lasting the same duration as the festival itself. One of the key elements of Zagmut was the reenactment of this cosmic battle in the real court, with the king uh, playing the role of Marduk. And this would have been a deeply symbolic magical act believed to have a real effect on the cosmos. And in some variations of the festival, it was believed that Marduk would be slain by Tiamat on the wind solstice and then resurrected on the vernal equinox, marking the cyclical nature of life and renewal. We can see examples of this battle in the amazing text known as the Enuma Elish, or the Babylonian Epic of Creation. And this is an ancient Mesopotamian text that basically recounts the creation of the universe and the rise of the god Marduk. And the text begins with a description of the primordial world as follows. When on high the heaven had not been named, Firm ground below had not been called by name, Nought but primordial Apsu, their begetter, Mumu Tiamat, she who bore them all, Their waters commingling as a single body, No reed but had been matted, no marshland had appeared. And then it goes on to talk more about Marduk's rise to power and his battle with Tiamat, saying, O Lord of the gods, destiny of the great gods, if I, your avenger, conquer Tiamat and give you life, appoint an assembly, make my fate preeminent and proclaim it. In Upsikakunu, Seat yourself joyfully together with my word in place of you, will I decree fate. May whatsoever I do remain unaltered. May the word of my lips never be chanced, nor made of no avail. And that's a selection of um, sections from the Enuma Elish, which is the the, the primary text that talks about this uh, Marduk and Tiamat. But in terms of this festival at the winter solstice, the king played a pivotal role in this um, occasion, um, particularly during the ritual in the temple of Marduk. And there would be a really dramatic kind of display of humility and devotion where the high priest would ceremonially strip the king of his power and rank and then reinstate him only after a display of submission and oath-taking to the god. And this act essentially symbolised the king's role as a servant of the divine and guardian of the cosmic order, but also had a magical purpose to it. If we think about the forces of chaos as representing the past, but also the darkness of the winter, then the ritual defeat of those forces of, of chaos and then the recreation of the world as order would enable the king to ritually create the cosmos, which is very similar to the idea, as we spoke about in the, the Magical Circle episode, where the magician you know, banishes the forces of chaos using banishing rituals such as you know the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, 
and then they invoke the powers of order so for example the archangels it could be the god or the goddess into that sacred sealed space and by doing that they are recreating the universe and they are creating this special place that then enables them to bring about a certain amount of control um, to the future harmony um, with the people um, through this kind of magical cleansing of the old and then a rebirth of the new as well and interestingly this idea of the switching of roles is quite common with the winter solstice and it shares several similarities with medieval european celebrations they've got like the 12 days of christmas um 12th night which also kind of featured this idea of kind of role reversal costume parades and lighting of fires etc also in ancient persia the winter solstice was celebrated with the festival of yalda night and this festival celebrated the birth of the god mithras who was a deity whose worship originated in the persian empire and later spread across the Roman Empire. And he is often associated with the sun and light, and his birth symbolises the triumph of light over darkness. And Mithras is normally depicted as a young man wearing a Phrygian cap, which is kind of like, a, looks a bit like the sort of French Revolution cap. And he's slaying a bull. And according to the myth, Mithras was born from a rock, and his birth was witnessed by shepherds which makes this story very symbolic and interesting, um, particularly in relation to the Christian story of the, tri the Christ child and the shepherds. There's a really interesting image of the birth of Mithras carved into the wall at Housesteads near Hadrian's Wall in the UK, where he is shown as emerging from an egg-shaped zodiac ring or a cosmic egg. We also have a really beautiful hymn uh, known as the Avastan hymn in praise of Mithras that was translated by the eminent um, scholar Ilya Gershevitz that goes as follows, and I quote, Grassland, magnate Mithra we worship, whose words are correct, who is challenging, has a thousand ears, is well built, has ten thousand eyes, is tall, has a wide outlook is strong, sleepless, waking, whom the warriors worship at the manes of their horses, requesting strength for their teams, health for themselves, much watchfulness against antagonists, ability to strike back at enemies, ability to rout lawless, hostile opponents. Mithras, who is the first supernatural god to approach across the Har, in front of the immortal swift-horsed god, who is the first to seize the beautiful gold-painted mountaintop. From there the most mighty surveys the whole land inhabited. Where gallant rulers organise many attacks, where high sheltering mountains with ample pasture provide solicitous for cattle, where deep lakes stand with surging waves, where navigatable rivers rush wide with a smell. So that's a quote from the um, Avastan texts about Mithras. Mithras is interesting because he became very popular during the Roman world, particularly during the 1st to the 4th century AD, 
and was at the heart of a mystery religion known as Mithraism. And this cult, although it originated in Persia, uh, moved right across Europe and into the Roman tradition as well. And they essentially revered Mithras as this god of the sun, truth, loyalty. And it also led to the creation of various different mystery schools that offered a path to initiation through vigorous initiation and rituals. And members predominantly from the military um, and administrative classes, but also even slaves as well, were allowed to join this this particular uh, mystery schools. They gathered in underground temples called Mithraeum, uh, which would have been richly decorated with iconography depicting Mithras slaying a sacred bull. And a central myth of the religion symbolising life's renewal. And the initiates would essentially progress through seven different grades, which each have different names um, associated mainly some of them with animals. So there was there was one that was called the the crow, I believe, but there's also some other ones as well. They would progress through these seven grades, each symbolised by one of the celestial seven bodies or seven planets, and they'd be guarded by specific rites. So it's very interesting. We might do an episode on some of the. Uh, those rites and practices of the Mithras um, schools as well. But if we move over to the ancient Greeks and Romans too, they also had their own solstice celebrations. So in ancient Greece, they had a, a feast called the Linnea, which was held in Athens. This was this was celebrated in honour of the god Dionysus, who was the god of wine, fertility, and generally just having a good time and having a bit of a party. And it's one of the significant Dionysian festivals, along with another one called Dionysia. And this usually usually happened um, around this time in January. The festival had a really particular focus on the performance of drama and theatre. And it was especially known for its competitions in comedy and tragedy. And it was an important event for Athenian drama serving as a venue for the performance of new plays by playwrights such as Euripides, Sophocles and Aristophanes and it was one of the kind of key events that has been credited by scholars with the development of Greek theatre and obviously they would have had a really great time at this time you know processions, feasting, lots of drinking of wine and dancing all dedicated to Dionysus, so very similar to if you go out on, if you go out in your local town over Christmas, you know you can really feel the vibe of Dionysus going on. Everyone's in a really jolly mood, you know, consuming lots of drink and food, and uh, generally quite happy and happy to spend more money than they can probably afford as well. So I think it was quite similar to that in in ancient Greece, and it would have given them an opportunity to obviously honour the god Dionysus. Um, indulge in that entertainment and obviously enjoy the social and cultural aspects of Athenian life. We also, um, in the in the Roman tradition, we also have various different festivals that would have been around the winter equinox and Yule or Christmas. So we have Saturnalia and also the Feast of Sol in Victus. And Saturnalia was an older festival in the Roman calendar. And this was traditionally celebrated in honour of the god Saturn, um, who is the god of agriculture, but also time as well. 
And this began on December the 17th and lasted for several days, often until December the 23rd. And it was known for its festive and liberating atmosphere where social norms were relaxed and celebrations included feasting, role reversals, gift giving and lighting of candles. And the the role reversal element is quite interesting as we're told that during this festival, slaves were granted temporary freedom and privileges, um, as was described by Macrobius, who was a historian of the time. He wrote, During this holiday, slaves are given temporary freedom to say and do what they like. And also Seneca, in his epistles, wrote about the festivals, saying, It is now the month of December, when the greatest part of the city is in a bustle. Loose reins are given to public dissipation. Everywhere you hear the sound of great preparations. Similar traditions of role reversal and this kind of inversion of different positions um, are also found around this time. So, for example, in medieval Europe, we had the Feast of Fools, which would see lower clergy temporarily assume the roles of their superiors and creating a mockery of the serious and sombre aspects of religious life you also see the practice in a lot of like the old um, kind of manor houses and that would have existed in in England back in the day where they'd often have a practice where um, around Christmas or on Boxing Day um, the servants would actually all sit down and then the masters of the house would serve them and and kind of act as servants for that day. So some of these traditions carried on, um, and it's interesting to see you know how they originated in in you know really ancient times of Greece and Greek and Roman traditions. The other Roman festival that's around this time is the festival of Sol Invictus, which was dedicated to the unconquered sun. And this was celebrated on December the 25th and marked the sun's rebirth after the winter solstice and symbolised the victory of light over darkness. And this festival, instituted by the Emperor Aurelian in 274 AD, honoured Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun. And it was closely associated with earlier solar cults and gods like Sol Indigis and Mithras who we spoke about before in terms of the Persian element and this marks the sun's birth and the gradual lengthening of days following the winter solstice embodying hope and the promise of warmer days. Historical references to the festival um, we find in things like the Historia Augusta Um, indicate that the Roman cult of Sol Invictus existed well before the early Republic and activities during the festival included, you know, gift giving, making wishes. Um, They also did customs like kissing under the mistletoe, which is quite interesting, Um, but all was focused on this kind of celebratory nature. It also had the aspect of being... um, connecting the the leadership and the rulers with the divines similar in a way to the way that the kind of um, Egyptian pharaohs would align themselves with divine as well so for example Emperor Constantine before he before he converted to Christianity 
um, actually included Sol Invictus on coins with himself, which is really kind of highlighting this God's significance in Roman society. However, with the rise of Christianity as the state religion, the Sol Invictus kind of cults gradually declined. Uh, but a lot of the elements are, and symbolism behind Sol Invictus kind of had a big impact on the early development of Christianity, for sure. And as Christianity spread, it kind of incorporates lots of these different ideas and tradition, winter traditions into it um, that is in one way practical, but also symbolic. And early Christian leaders chose to celebrate the birth of Jesus, um, reintegrating a lot of these pagan customs into it as well which would really help if you think about you're trying to convert people um, to the new religion then uh, it makes sense to kind of carry things over from that perspective so as we can see from these ancient traditions the tradition of celebrating and honoring the, lo the longest night of the year is not new or even a christian practice but rather it stems from ancient cultures and it still continues to this day and we can also see that there is a theme that runs through these festivals um, that continues in celebrations today and although they are you know very different in terms of how they are how these festivals were celebrated they do share a common thread and that was this celebration of light hope and renewal and a fair bit of partying as well each of these festivals in its own way marks a period of reflection and rejuvenation and heralds the promise of a new beginning and the triumph of light over darkness. And this unifying symbolism underscores, really I think, the universal human experience of seeking light and hope amidst the challenges of life and making these festivals resonate deeply with people across the cultures and beliefs. From a magical and spiritual perspective, the time of Christmas and Yule is a time of really deep, profound spiritual significance. As we mentioned previously, it represents the rebirth of the sun, a symbol of hope and new beginnings, but is also known by occultists as the time of the cleansing tide, which is a time when Many occultists and practitioners ask the tide to take away the things in their life that are no longer serviceable or useful. And this is also one of the reasons why we make New Year's resolutions, as it's a time when we can get rid of things that we don't need and also begin new things. And this season is also viewed as being a liminal time, where the veil between the worlds is thin allowing for greater spiritual communication and introspection. So it's it's an ideal time for setting intentions for the future year, reflecting on the past and obviously preparing for the new one. And whilst, as I said before, this isn't really a Christian podcast, when we talk about this stuff, we can't really kind of avoid a lot of that symbolism because it's so kind of embedded into our culture. And from an esoteric Christian perspective, the time of Yule or Christmas is is kind of a celebration of the real heart of those mysteries. At its core, the festival of Christmas really symbolises the incarnation of the divine in the human form, 
which is epitomized by the birth of Jesus Christ. And this event's viewed not just as a miracle in time, but also as an allegory for the awakening of the divine spark within every human being. So esoteric Christianity often interprets the the nativity story as being a map for inner transformation and enlightenment where characters and events symbolise different aspects of that spiritual journey. And the birth of Christ in the manger can be seen as an emblem of this divine light manifesting in the most harshest, kind of modest of environments, suggesting also that spiritual awakening or enlightenment is accessible to all, regardless of your worldly status. And also the Star of Bethlehem is really important. Think about it, you know, guiding the wise men, um, can think of it in terms of an inner light or an intuition that guides the seeker towards spiritual wisdom. Also in the pagan tradition, the winter solstice marks the commencement of the calendar year, um, aligning with the winter solstice, which is obviously, as you mentioned before, characterised by the shortest day and the longest night. And this is usually observed on the t- December the 21st, but it can sometimes vary um, depending on where you are um, in the in the world. Uh, but generally speaking, majority of pagans will will celebrate it on the 20th, 23rd. Yule is celebrated as a fire festival, signifying the resurgence of light. And after this festival, as I mentioned, the days begin to get longer and they culminate in the summer solstice, the peak of the sun's strength. And while the sun's present remains you know, minimal and you won't even realise it to begin with after, the, after Yule, this festival really symbolises hope and patience and marking the end of the year's darker half and the return of the warmth, the growth and the light. As one author wrote, As the sun is reborn, our time of quiet reflection and meditation, the rest following the harvest draws to a close. New ideas, dreams, hopes and projects are born and our thoughts and energies turn to the new season of life ahead. True, there are months of cold ahead for many of us, but the light grows and warmth will follow. Newborn sun is the great mother's girl to the world, and this is reflected in our gifts to friends and family. Giving is a statement of faith in the abundance to come and the love that survives the coldest winter. And that's a quote from Covencraft. As you've already mentioned, the winter solstice significance has been acknowledged for, for many, many, you know, hundreds and thousands of years, um, observed through many different patterns across the seasons. And in the Wiccan and pagan traditions, Yule is the time when the god is reborn, following his sacrifice and death at Samhain in late October. And the faint sunlight during the solstice symbolises the newly born god, gradually regaining strength and the goddess transitions from the crone aspect which is kind of like the cold dark winter to the mother aspect representing the earth and then later on in the spring the maiden 
the earth enters a period of rest after giving birth to the god as well this is described nicely by vivian crowley when she wrote the following new hope comes from the next generation the god will be reborn through his son at yule a solar festival the sun is born the Sabbath is a celebration of the child's promise. At this festival, the old God must come to terms with the implications of parenthood. For each new birth brings us a little nearer to death. At Imbolc or Candlemas, the people plead for the return of the goddess from the underworld to renew the earth. So Yule is a time of celebration celebrating life's renewal and unlike some of the other sabbats it's, it's often more subdued um often an indoor celebration just because you know it's freezing outside and people don't always want to be out there in in the bitter rain and cold so often people will celebrate this in indoors and give thanks to the year that's gone by and typically uh, in a lot of neo-pagan practices people will adorn their altars with you know evergreens um, like yew, cedar, pine, spruce, holly and other winter plants as well and often a lot of focus would be on, on candles and sort of bringing light into the darkness. Yule is also associated with various deities symbolising the rebirth of the sun and this period honours an array of infant sun gods each embodying the return of light and life. So among these are Horus and Apollo, representing renewal and enlightenment in their respective mythologies. We also have Baal, Baldor and Shamash as well. The Horned God is also celebrated as the Winter King, as, as being representative of nature's cyclical transformation. And some Dianic traditions also focus more, shift more towards uh, the feminine so you get the birth of sun goddesses like lucia being commemorated or ariana or amaterasu and bast kind of symbolizing the sun's warmth another goddess that's very important to this festival is one that we spoke about when we were talking about the the northern quarter um, of the magical circle and this is the kaliak who is a figure from celtic mythology that's often associated with winter and the, and the kind of darker aspects of nature. And in many Celtic traditions, the Kaliak is seen as the embodiment of winter. She's often depicted as an old woman who ushers in the cold, harsh weather and the death or dormancy of nature. And this corresponds to the, the, the Yule period, which marks the shortest day and obviously the longest night of the year. And her presence during Yule kind of symbolises this peak of her power where her influence is most strongly felt before it hands over with the rebirth of the sun. The Kaliak is quite a kind of scary figure to to think about. Um, but she's not just a symbol of death and darkness. She also represents the cycle of life, death and rebirth. And as we mentioned before, Yule is a celebration of the return of the light. So as the days grow longer following the solstice, this aspect of the Kaliak reflects the understanding that after winter, spring will come. And it's a reminder that even in the darkest times, there's hope and there's potential for renewal and growth in our lives. Also, the Kaliak is sometimes viewed as a guardian of the steward of the land. 
and her role during the winter months can be seen as a necessary period of rest and rejuvenation for the earth and in this sense Yule is not only a celebration of the return of the light but also an acknowledgement of the importance of the dark of rest and the Kallax's role in that is very important in terms of this natural balance Two other figures that are really important to the season of Yule from a pagan perspective are the Oak King and the Holly King. And these twin aspects, often portrayed as battling for supremacy, represent the waxing and waning of the seasons. The Holly King rules from midsummer to Yule. It really symbolises the waning year and I just I wrote a poem about this one actually um, a couple of years ago which I wanted to kind of read for you and it goes as follows I am the king of the winter and the lord of the waning year I am the regent of the dying sun when the dark nights grow longer and the golden light of the spring seems far away I am the lord of the ashes from which the beautiful phoenix rises for all things must pass and be reborn once more. I am the wren, the father of the sun-child, but also the aches of pains of age that must follow youth. As the summer in the south is the time for growth and expansion, my time is of sleep, rest and deep reflection on the knowledge one has gained during life. All of existence is cyclical, the great wheel of birth, life and rebirth. And that's a poem I wrote about the Holly King. Um, the, other, the other figure that's important to this exchange is the Oak King, who reigns from Yule to Midsummer. And the Oak King represents the waxing year and the resurgence of light and warmth, and is often associated with the Green Man, whereas the Holly King is more associated with the figure of Father Christmas or Santa Claus however you want to call him. And the green man is an interesting element associated with the Christmas season as it's kind of representative of the vitality of vegetation and the enduring spirit of nature, despite the cold and the harsh weather. And the Oak King really kind of defeats the Holly King at this period and then kind of takes over and you begin to see, obviously, it's starting to go through the seasons from spring into summer. And I also wrote a poem about the Oak King, which I wanted to quickly read as well, which I thought might be relevant. I am the Oak King of the spring and the summer. I am the spirit of the forest, the king in green. I am the horned one that causes the sap to rise in the trees. Gwynapnut, Hern the hunter and Pan. I am the lust of new lovers and the light that glows in companionship at the end of life. I am the Robin Redbreast of Christmas, and the Green Knight who did battle with Gawain. I am the rebirth of nature, the creative matrix that ensures the green shoots of the imagination are reborn and grow once more from out of their sleep in the cold embrace of the goddess that sleeps. Hearken, the solstice is nearly upon us, and the sun grows near. These two mighty beings represent the coldness of winter and the waning year, and then the warmth of summer and the waxing year. 
and also known as the old god and the young god. And these two mighty forces are traditionally said to engage in this endless battle which kind of represents this seasonal cycle of the year. Solar light and dark but also the idea of crop renewal and growth. At midsummer the oak king is at the height of his strength and then the holly king begins to regain his strength at the autumn equinox. And then the holly king's strength at midwinter at which point the oak king is reborn and begins to grow and so it begins and so it's sort of the, the cycle continues. The Oak King is also the consort of the Mother Goddess and must sacrifice himself at the height of his power and virility to ensure that the fertility of the land is strong. So this internal battle of the powers of light and dark is really important from a magical perspective because it's through these ancient symbols we begin to we can begin to try and understand ourselves a little better and also bring our own shadows into focus. So like the interplay between the Holly King and the Oak King, as magicians, we must learn to walk the middle path between light and dark. Because all things are one in the eyes of the Divine Creator. The battle between light and dark is an eternal one that is never ending. Um, for this is part of the great cycle of manifestation. And... The divine creative process that brings all things into being. So the Oak King and Holly King are mortal enemies at Yule and Midsummer, but both are two sides of the same thing and neither can exist without the other. So we can kind of think about that as well from the point of view of um, our light side and our dark side. They're both they're both part of us, both as important. Everything is a cycle. Everything is moving all the time. We will now move on to discussing the Kabbalistic symbolism of the festival of Christmas and Yule. And whilst there's, with regards to Kabbalah, there's no direct links between it and Christmas. However, Given the themes of renewal and rebirth and this idea of the light in the darkness, we can discuss several different Kabbalistic concepts in relation to this festival. In one way, the festival of the light can be linked with Keta on the tree of life, with Keta positioned at the top of the tree, symbolizing the purest form of divine consciousness, a state of unity and the beginning of all things, the birth of light from the unmanifest of the Ein Sof hour. Keta in the Kabbalistic tradition represents the highest sephira on the tree of life. It signifies pure consciousness, non-duality, and is sometimes depicted through various symbols like a sparkling diamond or a white swan or a white dove as well. And this aspect of Keta as a point of unity and origin, where everything that was, is and will be, passes through, can also be linked to the renewal themes we associate with Yule and Christmas. Also, just as Yule and Christmas with their themes of light and rebirth can be interpreted as metaphors for spiritual awakening and the triumph of consciousness over the darkness of ignorance. The festivals of Yule and Christmas offer a chance for inner growth, 
which mirrors Keter's embodiment of the highest spiritual potential and the source of enlightenment. The lighting of candles and the warmth of gatherings during these times reflect the animation of divine light from Keter, guiding the individual's journey towards spiritual realisation and also providing us with light throughout the year ahead. As Charles Dickens wrote, I will honour Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. In the same way as magicians, we should aim to keep Keter or the highest aspect of ourselves within our hearts throughout the year as a constant guiding light or a star that leads us across the dark desert towards self-realisation. The idea of Christmas being linked with Keter is also something that John Michael Greer writes about on his blog when he says the following. Keter is the summit of the tree of life and the source of all light. It is the single star that shines across the abyss, just as the newborn sun brings the new, brings the year's longest night to an end. In the Golden Dawn tradition, which maps out the tree of life on the sphere of the heavens, Keter's place is at the north celestial pole, guided by the prowling great bear. Its astrological correspondence has been debated amongst Kabbalists, with some suggesting Pluto, others the Milky Way, and still others relying on the ancient concept of the primum mobile, the outermost sphere that moves all the heavens. All these cases share the concept of Keta as the highest and outermost realm of manifestation. Equally, the golden dawn grave initiation corresponding to Keta is that of Ipsissimus, most oneself. The idea of the virgin birth in the Christian story, and also to a certain extent in the um, story of Isis and Osiris, can also be considered from a Kabbalistic point of view as being the union of the divine masculine Chokhmah and the divine feminine Bina. Through the relationship and love of these two aspects of the divine, the universe is created as the son of the divine that corresponds with the sixth Sephirah on the tree of life, which is Tiferet. And this idea can be clearly seen in the formula of the Tetragrammaton when we consider the following. We have Yod, which begins the Tetragrammaton, and this is really the formulation of the initial creative force, the power of the Father who is self-begotten, and unto whom it is said, Thou hast formulated thy father and made be fertile by thy mother. We then have He is added to the Yod, and this symbolises the marriage of the Father to the equal mother. And in the Thelemic system, this also represents Nuit and Hadit. And then we also have Yod and He bringing forth the son, who is Val, who is the heir, which is attributed to Tiferet. And then finally, we have the daughter, He, which is born both, both symbolically, both the twin sister and also the daughter of Val. And that's representative of the world of Malkut. So all of creation can be thought to come through the feminine sphere of Bina, as Anne Davis wrote. Herein lies the real meaning of the virgin birth and of the immaculate conception. The cosmic mother who is our true mother is the manifesting principle. She is forever pure and undefiled, because no matter how many forms and shapes emanate from her creative substance, the substance remains forever itself. All living creatures are created by the Father, Hokma, through the power of Bina, which is the manifesting principle of the divine and made manifest in Tiferet. And also from a higher, from a 
kind of spiritual perspective, Tifret is also where the higher self resides, or also the holy guardian angel. Tifret is an interesting sephira which I wanted to talk about briefly. And this is also associated with the sun in the Tree of Life, and it symbolizes the central role of the sun in the universe, the heart of the Tree of Life. And it's also similar to how the sun is central to our solar system and brings us life. Tifret also symbolizes the individual's true will, and is almost similar to a divine spirit within the heart that's fueled by truth and spiritual devotion. It's also known as the mediating intelligence because it balances human nature and harmonizes the universal flow with our personal genius or holy guardian angel. Tifret, if you look at the Tree of Life as well, is like a lower version of Keta, so it's reflecting the divine essence of Keta and also embodying the concept of the divine child or the manifest divinity. It signifies the point of illumination as well, revealing the mysteries and bringing forth wisdom of Hokma and understanding of Bina. And it's also associated with gods of light and the sun who are seen to be illuminators and acts as a balancing point between force and form in the tree of life. So it's channeling these higher energies into the manifest forms that are lower on the tree. Tifret, as we mentioned, is also associated with the symbolism of the child and also the dying resurrected God. So from a magical correspondence, we can think of it as being that it's in Tifret that we have gods like Osiris, um, Jesus, Baal, Baldur. And the name of Jesus is also important in this regard from a Kabbalistic perspective, particularly in relation to the Tetragrammaton and also the celebration of the festival of Christmas as the rebirth of light. The Tetragrammaton, as we mentioned, is composed of the Hebrew letters of yod Hey vau Hey, representing the highest Hebrew name for God, and also symbolizing the four basic elements of fire, water, air, and earth. However, the addition of the fifth element, spirit, is represented by the letter Shin, and this transforms the Tetragrammaton into something called the Pentagrammaton, which creates the name Yeheshua, which is also the Hebrew name for Jesus. And this transformation can signify the descent of the sacred spirit into the material world, embedding the divine essence within the core elements of existence. The significance of the name of Jesus is important in this, in this regard, because it embodies the incarnation of divine spirits into the material realm, um, which is obviously celebrated at Christmas as this rebirth of the light. And the event symbolizes not just the physical birth, but also this infusion of divine illumination into the material world. It also reflects the integration of the spirit, the letter Shin, with the material elements of yod Hey vau Hey, which illustrates the holistic nature of the universe where the spiritual and the material are linked together so the name jesus or yeheshua serves as a powerful symbol in esoteric traditions encapsulating this union of the divine with the earthly and the illumination of the spiritual realms with the physical realms and this is described well by david rankin um, in his excellent book climbing the tree of life as follows this magical formula is that of divine manifestation. On the one hand, it is the name of Jesus as God incarnate. 
However, it is also the unpronounceable name of Tetragrammaton, which can be seen as representing the four elements with the letter Shin corresponding to spirit in the centre. So it is the formula of elements in perfect balance, manifesting spirit by their harmony. Tifret, therefore, can be seen as being important from the point of view of the magician, as it's in Tifret that is assigned the idea of the Messiah, the Redeemer, and also Malek, ruler of the kingdom, and it's therefore the work of humanity and the magician or practitioner to redeem that which is corrupted and base and bring it into the light of the sun and therefore the light of escape from suffering and embracing freedom. Um, this can also be seen as kind of the work of elevating oneself up to the level of Tiferet through the work of the Holy Garden Angel or, you know, practices such as like Abramelon, etc., which aim to kind of unite you with your higher self. Our higher self being in Tiferet, then the work really is to bring about the marriage of the bride and the son in Tiferet to elevate and achieve enlightenment so the bride is obviously Malkut and then the sun is in Tiferet so it's bringing about this wedding um, of those two elements and being reborn in the sun as Anne Davis wrote we are all evolving towards awakening to our rightful place in the universe on the individualized level the virgin birth or birth of the Christ child is symbolical of the birth of a higher level of consciousness this is the new birth. This is what the life of Jesus portrayed. His life exemplified the way to mastery through self-conscious participation in the evolutionary process. Jesus in our tradition was the most highly evolved soul to incarnate and the first to reach full Christ consciousness or full conscious union with the ego in Tiferet and through that union, a union with the Father in Hochmah. Another aspect of Kabbalistic thought is also relevant to the idea of the light emerging from the darkness and the idea of elevating the lower aspects into the light is the concept of tikkun olam or the divine sparks. And this idea originates in the 16th century with the famous Kabbalist rabbi Isaac Luria who introduced the mystical concept that when God attempted to create the world the divine light was too intense for the vessels that were meant to contain it, that caused them to shatter. And this event scattered divine sparks throughout the material world. And the task of humanity, according to Luria, is to free these sparks and elevate them back to divinity, thus repairing the world on a cosmic scale. Luria is said to have written the following. And when enough holy sparks have been gathered, the broken vessels will be restored, and Tikkun Alam the repair of the world awaited for so long will finally be complete. Therefore, it should be the aim of everyone to raise these sparks from wherever they are imprisoned and to elevate them to holiness by the power of their soul. This idea of the divine spark representing the purest essence of the soul also finds a kind of symbolic echo in much of the symbolism of the Christmas story uh, particularly from a Christian perspective, this holiday symbolising hope and renewal reflects this quest to rediscover and nurture that inner divinity within us, a theme central to Kabbalistic teachings 
and the emphasis on light, love, and the spirit of giving um, kind of almost serves as a practical embodiment of engaging in acts that kindle that divine spark within, um, promote generosity, promote thankfulness of our fellow human beings, which obviously aligns with lots of the, the kind of work from a Kabbalistic point of view. So as we've seen, you know, the essence and mythos of the Christmas and Yule can be best symbolised by this theme of the light piercing through the darkness. And, you know, this is vividly depicted through the symbolism of the glowing Christ child or the baby Horus in ancient Egypt. The twinkling lights adorning our Christmas trees and houses, you know, the dark tree that you have in your garden that honours the holly king and the oak king. And also obviously honouring the crone and the rising of the light with the spring. But fundamentally, this festival represents a beacon of light amidst darkness, a source of warmth in the chill, and a semblance of order within disorder. It embodies the concept of redemption through divine illumination at its bleakest moment. And regardless of whether we are Christian or pagan or any other tradition, I think through aligning ourselves with the highest aspect of ourselves, our highest light at Christmas or Yule, we can also hope that in the new year we can sense, in a sense, experience the same birth of light, uh, the same birth of the child with light within us, the Horace child or the Christ or all of these different things. Christmas and Yule can be seen almost as an opportunity to cast away that which is no longer needed and bring about a birth of a new day, a new year in which the divine can manifest in our lives more fully as initiates of the light. And the idea of initiation is interesting from this perspective because as a newly initiated neophyte in many magical orders, there, there was a name that was used to describe them, and that was as a newborn babe. But this term is not referring to the physical body of the person, but rather to their immortal side, the divine nature which is born into a higher level of consciousness. Through the, per, through the process of magical and spiritual work that, lead, that may lead to initiations, and the great work our higher self receives power, that spark within us begins to glow brighter and brighter and begins to awaken and begins to transform ourselves and the world around us. As Jung wrote, the initiate takes part in a sacred rite which reveals to him the perpetual continuation of life through transformation and renewal. In these mystery dramas, the transcendence of life is usually represented by the fateful transformations, death and rebirth of a god or a godlike hero. The initiate who ritually enacts the slaying, dismemberment and scattering of Osiris and afterwards his resurrection in the green wheat experiences in this way the permanence and continuity of life which outlasts all changes of form and phoenix-like continually rises anew from its own ashes. 
that's all we've got time for today. I hope you've enjoyed this extra long Christmas Yule episode. Um, apologies, I do have a bad cold at the moment, so if my voice sounds a bit croaky, um, I ask for your forgiveness. We will have loads more episodes coming up in the new year, so please keep listening if you find it interesting. Also, once again, thanks a massive thanks to all of our supporters this year. Um, your support means an awful lot, and we could not do this without you. I wanted to finish the episode with a Christmassy poem by Susan Cooper called The Shortest Day. And so the shortest day came and the year died, and everywhere down the centuries of the snow-white world came people singing, dancing, to drive the dark away. They lighted candles in the winter trees, they hung their homes with evergreen, they burnt beseeching fires all night to keep the year alive, and when the New Year's sunshine blazed awake, they shouted revelling, through all the frosty ages you can hear them, echoing behind us, listen. All the long echoes sing the same delight this shortest day. As promise wakens in the sleeping land, they carol, feast, give thanks, and dearly love their friends, and hope for peace. And now so do we, here now, this year and every year. Welcome you.